Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. This episode of the Sustainability and You podcast, we were lucky enough to interview Alex Millwood, Director of Carbon Capture, Usage and Storage at Bears. After a very successful career as a senior partner at EY, Alex has taken a leadership role in the development and implementation of the CCUS business model. Alex talks to us about the fundamental tenets of establishing an economic model that works within a world that is decarbonizing and at an increasingly accelerated rate, and that consequently needs to look at a broad spectrum of technologies in the delivery of a lower carbon future. Alex articulately explains the balance of people, planet and profit, as we look to fit CCUS into the energy transition landscape. So welcome, Alex Millwood, to the Sustainability and You podcast. Tilly and I are absolutely delighted to have you with us today. We've been really excited to really pick your brains on all things carbon capture, usage and storage uh, related. So welcome. Welcome to the, the podcast, Alex. Thank you. Delighted to be here. We wanted to start, Alex, just by asking you about your first five, six months in, in role. Tell us about your role and how it's been for you. Fantastic, in a word. I've been thoroughly impressed with the team that I'm working with. Obviously, the, you know, the E of Bayes, Business Energy and Industrial Strategies Department, uh, who I work with mostly, and I'm thoroughly impressed and, and genuinely, uh, you know, we as a country should be pleased and confident of the talent that we've got um, on display looking after our interests of uh, available, secure uh, and low carbon energy. You know, that said, it's a complex question to uh, to get answered through all those things. Uh, but just absolutely delighted. I mean, I joined, uh, you know, having worked with uh, you, know, you, Josephine, I was probably more on the affordable energy side, you know, predominantly the hydrocarbons and, and oil and gas. And I you know, had a strong motivation for uh, affordable, available energy and it's lifting lives. And I suppose I had a supreme confidence in human ingenuity of solving the low carbon bit of energy you know, with all the good work and the talents that you've been doing in, in that area in solar and beyond uh, working on that but I guess my confidence waned a bit uh, that we would do it in time and at a low enough cost and with the sort of market failures that exist in the in the energy transition you know this is why it hasn't happened before it sort of needs the public sector to address that so if I was going to make a contribution then Moving from private sector was somewhere where I felt I could make more of a contribution to both sides of affordable, available energy and the low carbon and, and just delighted. And the 
the energy transition that's underway and accelerating in the UK has got a great team uh, behind it. Lots of big, complex questions to ask. Well, let's get into that then. Look, the development of the investment landscape for carbon capture usage and storage, I'll just say carbon capture to make it easier for us, as well as the um, operational environment for success, is not without its challenges. You know, as you've alluded to already, there's been historic slow deployment, which has been a matter of concern when we, we, we look at what we're trying to do now. But I think the UK is uniquely placed, isn't it, to capture this market with its geological advantages. And I guess it strikes me that to create a positive environment for success, we need that intersection of regulation, public and private funding, incentivization regimes. And I guess, importantly, clear and sustainable government policy. So could we start with your views on that, and particularly the latter, given the vagaries and support for carbon capture historically? Yeah, I I think the good news is, in my opinion, is the prerequisites for success are all there, both public sector and private sector, and society and stakeholders to achieve net zero by 2050 or, or beyond or, or before. I think the complexity is is answering the how to achieve it, which technologies are really going to be the ones that will get us there, how fast should each move, what scale can it get to, and therefore the investment both from public sector and private sector to so that pace and scale is the question which we're answering across and, you know, a lot of the technologies there that, that contribute to that, and we can touch on some of those as well. You know, I think Government has already you know, put out its store there with a, with a one billion capital fund, plus knowing that additional uh, business model revenue support would need to be there for what is essentially a waste removal service. I mean, you know, we like the life-enhancing quality of hydrocarbons, but there's some of them that we like less, so we want to stick them back under the ground and not into the atmosphere that's, that's contributing to climate change. Uh, and so, you know, that that is there. The private sector and the investors uh, seem to be lined up for there. Uh, last week, we published a study which we've been undertaking for quite some time. Uh, you know, that's called a public dialogue about what we think representative members of society view about carbon capture. But I think the you know the auspices of public sector, private sector, and society uh, are there to succeed this time. But you know, like I say, we got to work through the how fast and how much of each technology, which is the question which we're working on right now. And so what do you think is different this time round? A lot of what you are talking about and seem to be alluding to is a much more holistic view of the place of this technology within the energy transition and the wider contribution it will make to economic prosperity and, and, and employment. And the articulation seems to be broader than it was historically. Yeah, I think yeah, we should you know, um, tell it how it is. You know, there have been twice we've taken this horse uh, to, to the water cooler and, and, and the, 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 the programme has stopped in you know, 2012 and, and 2015, I think. Uh, you know, so industry, you know, twice bitten, thrice shy in terms of whether the government commitment uh, is there this time. I think you know, there's a wide range of things which are different, uh, which gives me the confidence of the prerequisites. You know, the global conversation is very different and the, therefore the political will and being amongst the, the desire to be amongst the leaders and the, and the solution providers rather than the problem 
given uh, is there. I think that's at the, the global and the political level. I think instituting net zero into law is very important and the investors who we talk to you know, really look to legislative change uh, because that's a lever which is hard to change if government switches from one to another. And actually we can compare different country approaches to this, which I think is interesting. And the society, you know, the UK society support is there. So I think the, you know, the legal foundation, government committing to CB6 in April was a very important signal because that you know, now removes any doubt as to the whole system needs to decarbonise. Whereas in CB5, there was a little bit of uh, leeway as to what we get. So I think that commitment removes any any doubt as to all the different technologies need to move. You know, the IPCC and the Committee for Climate Change here in the UK have said carbon capture, utilisation storage is essential for the achievement of, of net zero. And you know, I, I think you know, everyone agrees it's a question. And I think some of the other lessons we've taken from the approach taken last time, plus other programmes as well. And actually, government, in my experience, you know, coming in and seeing it, does a pretty good job of lessons. And previously, the previous approach is essentially putting a system in place which was one block of the end-to-end va- -end of the value chain. The power was, it was primarily power, carbon capture, uh, transport, and the storage were all connected under one single business model. And yet the prior providers and the capability and the expertise was generally in separate companies. Uh, so getting them to combine all of that, the different parties um, and the different risks, I think, made it complicated. And also having a dependence on one carbon source of power uh, meant that you, sort of, you didn't necessarily have the resilience that this time we've set up wanting a portfolio of different emitters, uh, both power, a broad range of industrial emitters, be it uh, cement, steel, uh, refining, chemicals, plants, uh, gas plants, which are all things which are heavy industry, heavy energy. And whilst some of them have sort of got a bit of a tarnished name as a result of that heavy energy, heavy emissions historically, society demonstrates has a, a strong, strong need, both power and electricity that it provides and the steel, the concrete, for the chemicals that we use. And so if we can get those in a net zero way, then you know, that's fantastic. And then the third branch, which has diversity to the system, the value chain this time, and the UK has taken a policy of colour blinds on hydrogen. So you know, using blue and getting to low carbon blue through gas-fired power and, and capture to generate that high energy through. And you know, that and hydrogen itself will provide high intensity available energy source into these industries, the, the steels and coes, which are so-called hard to abate industries. And when I you know, talk to the executives, they want high quality, reliable energy to, you know, to run their businesses. And they really want to participate in net zero and, and, and in decarbonizing their industry. You know, they are members of society, they've got family, they've got friends, and they really, really want to be in a decarbonized solution. And they look at all the different choices that are available and what's likely to succeed on what. And their conclusion is, we'd like carbon capture, please, and, and you know, the hydrogen benefit that that provides and the electrons that that provides as we move from molecules to give us to give us all of that and, and to drive us forward and to protect the jobs that they've got and to provide the, 
products that we need, but convert them into green products, green steel, green cement, um, mixing our colours between hydrogen and, and, and that in terms of you know, having low carbon, low carbon products and services. But they really, really want to participate. And so they see carbon capture as an and you're touching on your point about the economic case. A lot of these industries and businesses are in areas where there is very limited alternative employment. Um, so if the if the alternative to achieving net zero for these industries is shutting down and relying on other industries, there's very little alternative employment. And you know, I, I do, from a human scale, I look back and I talk to friends who I've known very well who were in coal mining communities which were shut down essentially very quickly without much of a transition. You know, and those communities were decimated and still struggle to a large extent to this day and, and have some of those you know, sort of social and, and economic benefits for it. So for me, you know, strong motivation is maintaining uh, jobs for those people who, who deserve good employment and doing that in a decarbonised way so that we can get the planet you know, continuing to breathe, uh, as well as creating new jobs in building the carbon capture infrastructure and the skills and the engineering and the innovation. And then if we can and play a leading role in helping other countries around the world achieve net zero too by exporting that capability and that talent to help other countries and then bring the whole world to net zero because you know like the vaccines no one's safe until we're all safe mm. and so you know I, I think that those fundamentals you know, all, all exist and the prerequisite so Alex you've just articulated quite yeah, a, a bigger picture view there of the role of a carbon capture within the energy transition and it sounds very much like we're on the electric train going in the right direction. Let's get into some of the detail then of the different types of carbon capture and your your views on that. The, there's a variety of technologies out there and usages ranging from sequestering CO2 for enhanced oil recovery, mobile carbon capture for cars and trucks, direct capture, the combination with, as you've talked about it, bioenergy and hydrogen and industrial carbon capture as well. Which of those do you think we should prioritise and why? In a nutshell, to achieve carbon budget six in the pace that we need to, we need to push them all. You know, we need all of them delivering. But I, I recognise not everyone agrees with that. And we can we can talk about some of the, the, the different views uh, and people have got different ideas around the pathways and the outcomes because not everyone agrees with, with what I've said. And we, we certainly, you know, and I really enjoy engaging with them and learning and trying to improve what we're doing. We can touch on that separately. So I, I think you know, to start with the, the move from molecules to electrons. So as we want more Electric vehicles is the obvious example, rather than fossil fuels in the car. Yeah, that requires a huge amount more electricity. Yes, UK government, you know, the 10-point plan, which I haven't mentioned yet, but was sort of issued in November, talks about a, you know, a significant increase in offshore wind. And the UK is you know, one of the leading markets in offshore wind and the creation, and, um, you know, as you covered in other podcasts. It requires a significant amount of that, but you know, the shift to electrons requires even more than what we think is achievable than what the uh, the pipeline for that that can present. So, you know, power and electricity generate, yes, from gas and yes, from effective carbon capture is, is going to be what's going to underpin that shift to um, to electrons that we, we see as a strong foundation. And I 
personally believe, and again, different people have got different views, uh, I'd really like a reverse gear for climate change. And by that, I'm thinking of negative emissions, greenhouse gas removal. So yes, it's one thing not to add to the 51 billion tonnes per annum of carbon that's being emitted through the various means uh, and not making that situation worse. My personal view of some of the technologies we're talking about overly rely on us as humans to change our behaviour. And different people have got different views, but my personal view is I'd quite like to have the hedge or the insurance of negative emissions if the, the building programme doesn't change fast enough, the transport programme doesn't change fast enough. Do we want to have an insurance policy that can put us into reverse gear and remove some of the historical carbon emissions? And the only option for that is with carbon capture and storage uh, that, that takes that through. And with be it direct air capture or bio biomass energy, which gives the benefit of electricity generation and more of those electrons and negative emissions. Biomass itself in its own individual conversation is controversial because a lot of people you know, can't believe that that is negative emissions. And you know, the UK government hasn't got a position on it yet and is working it through. But it seems to me from my personal research, this isn't a government policy opinion, but my personal research is sort of somewhat counterintuitively from burning uh, you know, wood chip and cast-offs of trees that you can get to negative emissions. Now, I think that's going to be a really hard sell for the public where we're told trees are our friends. They're the lungs of our world. They help us breathe. They are the carbon capture. So I think it's going to be a really hard message. But the science, in my view, seems to be true. And, and, and my other sort of experience that underpins that is, unfortunately, if humans don't find that something is useful, humans tend to get rid of it. You know, it's no surprise to me that our rainforests are reducing in large parts of the world, largely because the Western world, so-called Western world, is doesn't value it. And it values the alternative use of land, be it beef, be it uh, soya, be it other things, which then means the local communities sort of see that as a resource. And just like the UK exploited its coal resource, and the Brazilians are saying this is a resource that we want to explore. So, you know, we as humans, as as human race, needs to value those things a lot better. So, again, when it comes back to bio, if trees don't have a use, then we'll get rid of them and use that land for something else. So, it all depends on what your counterfactual is as to whether it's negative emissions or not, and and how that works. But my personal view is, uh, you know, the science is that it is negative emissions, and the the counterfactual, what the alternative is, that uh, we wouldn't get that. So that, that's, and you know, the science needs to be worked through, the policy needs to be worked through, and again, we can talk about policy development. Um, and the and, you know, the UK government needs to make a decision, and, and you know, that's that's not me making that decision. That's the electable um, you know, politicians who do that, who are, who are accountable. So then, you know, that's on that one. You know, direct air capture again. You know, lots of advance and development uh, on that at the moment. I mean, you know, at the moment even engineering-wise, not at the scale to get us into the the megatons and billion and of the kilograms and tons that are coming out at the moment, you know, the cost compared to alternatives is, is significant. So there's 
there's some people who might say, yes, I agree in theory, but in practice, it's too expensive. And then the last one you talked about, mobile. I mean, the way I think of it is, I think miniaturization, it happens on every technology. And for sure, there are waves of foot on that with the carbon capture as well. So at the moment, the capture tower, you're attached to a power plant or an industrial plant, is a relatively facility that you can see from around, which again, then... You know, will raise into questions for planning consent, but generally is already in an industrial landscape uh, where there's other, you know, even higher chimneys and, and, and elements. So that would depend on the local community, what they what they see. Um, but we are seeing innovation and compression of those capture towers. And there's people working extremely hard to try and get capture tower essentially on a gas rig or an oil rig, which is a very small uh, amount of space. So if you can put it behind a gas turbine, which creates the electricity on a oil rig or a plant, a gas plant, then you can make the production of that net zero uh, and then re-inject that into the ground, uh, which reduces some of your production emissions, which are about 2 to 3% of the UK's emission. So I think you know that degree of compact is coming down. Whether it gets into cars and transport before hydrogen wins out as the energy vector for large-scale mobility or electric vehicles or wall-to-wall, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see. And then, you know, the, one of the things you know, we as government are trying to do is create the environment by which the market decides what the technology winners are uh, and the incentives to do so. So, uh, you know, People can make those choices themselves. Conscious, I've been ruffling on a bit, but there's two other points. You talked about usage and uh, enhanced oil recovery. Some countries do use it for enhanced oil recovery. The advantage from an economic perspective is that you know that then has a, a value add usage, where you know again against some people's wishes that that will produce oil, which lifts lives and, and all of those things. Whereas some people wish we, we weren't using it for that, but it's got a value add activity as opposed to a waste removal activity. And no one really likes that to pay for waste removal. They do it when they're regulated and told to do so, including us in our in our homes. And then when it comes to other forms of usage, you know, the government policy is you know, permanent and safe storage of carbon and removal of carbon, which is offshore and under the seabed. I'm I would love for there to be far more value-add usages that are created because then the incentive changes for people. And there are some fantastic you know, fertilizer companies, again, which UK government, we can come to the innovation uh, question again in a minute, have supported in the early stages where they inject carbon into waste product that makes a, a, a zero carbon, and you can even get into negative emissions fertilizer that then gets into the ground and then the carbon is sequestered into the ground the question is you know how long is is that is that permanent as in your know, geological permanent tens of thousands of years or is it sort of hundreds of years so but i would buy if we could get to more value-add usage even if it's just for you know 100 or 200 years i think that buys us a lot of time as society to then innovate and engineer lots of other changes and i, and I think we need the time so if you infused carbon into concrete you can get green concrete it goes into a building eventually that building will crumble uh, which is why it's not permanent on geological terms Um, but i I would buy that time that it gives us 
And we'll come on to innovation because I do think that's a really important area for future consideration. But I just wanted to pause for a moment and, and focus on the hard to abate sectors and the deployment of carbon capture here requires either a complete reconfiguration of production plants and infrastructure or new build. Now, clearly, this is really very costly and integrating supply chains, you know, resolving the technical challenges. It's very risky and hard to finance. You and your team are devising and discussing and consulting on new business models to facilitate a stable investment landscape here. Could you just talk us through the fundamental building blocks of what's being proposed there and and how that's evolving? Yeah, happy to. And actually, before I sort of, I'll just sort of say you use the word cost. Costly all depends on what you think the alternative is. You know, yes, waste removal that you're not doing today is more costly than not doing it. If you've got a free resource and then you're no longer that resource is free, that's more costly compared to, and I'll exaggerate, taking buckets and lapping out seawater from the centre of London or building you know, even bigger flood defences. And we've seen the floods in Germany. We've seen floods in the UK. We're seeing Miami uh, building flood wall defences on the sea. And I've heard you know, astronomical billions, billions, billions of pounds. Uh, you know, the cost of adaptation and the cost of uh, is, is far higher. Yeah. Uh, so costly, I think, is a relative term. And we need to sort of think about how it is. Um, we have to personalise it then, don't we, as well? Because it's sort of bringing those examples to your front door, isn't it? And yes. saying, well, what, how am I, what am I going to do differently or how am I going to invest differently mm-hmm. when that reality becomes my reality? Yeah, no, I agree. And what, what will each individual do and, and, and pay? And then you know, what's a fair distribution of any additional yeah. costs is another one. As we come back to the business models, so I think one of the – I talked about the, the – Dividing the value chain uh, from the previous um, approaches on carbon capture into into different segments, and we're looking to create different business models to support the different constituent segments. Uh, so we talk about power. There is relatively you know, relatively well known approach to power, and it'll be using essentially part of a underpinned by a contract for difference program, but we're calling it a dispatchable power agreement. And the reason it's dispatchable is that, you know, there's a merit table of which energy types we want to kick in first where energy is needed when we all switch on our kettles on the Coronation Street or, or whatever it is. And so wind you know, will be the priority when the wind is blowing, when the sun is shining, you know, those will be consumed first. When we all collectively decide to use more energy than that, uh, then actually, you know, nuclear kicks in on the next merit table because that is a low carbon energy. Again, that's a whole debate for another podcast. And then the the, the power carbon capture will then trigger uh, before you then get to unabated power. For a while, you know, we are going to have gas-fired power stations continuing, and you know, coal until 24 until that's phased out as well. Uh, so it's got a, a merit table essentially around along the carbon uh, emission element and business very familiar with that and the private sector is very familiar with that and the risks and rewards with that and again it's got the great advantage of being a value-add product it generates electricity which people want at this line and they can charge their electric vehicles their smartphones and, and everything else with it so that that i think has got a lot of support the industrial again is you know a straight contract for difference which industry is very familiar with and again underpinned uh, 
for growth and expansion of the wind farms. We're essentially trying to find that optimum sweet point, what I call the Goldilocks point, between protecting the consumer, the citizens, the taxpayer, wherever that um, funding comes from, for paying for the waste removal, uh, whilst giving enough incentive to the investors and the operators and the shareholders of a business to actually pay the extra cost for the carbon to be captured. And then there's a number of factors, but the amount of support that the industries get will reduce as carbon price goes up. So as we as society start to value clean air and carbon-free air, not totally free, we need to get it back down under 400 parts per million, then the amount of money that those industries will require to support them will go down. And that's a very, very similar model to wind farms and investors who look after my mum's pension and an awful lot of other things on our behalf are very familiar with that. And so that's that, in, that, that becomes an And that's problem. in line with the um, presumably the, the the reducing costs of actually installing carbon sort of capture so that, that the cost curve goes down. In, yeah, so as, as each project comes on, I think yeah. they'll have a you know a different contract and a different settlement, much like again wind farms. Uh, the amount of support the first ones needed mm. before it was certain and before the cost curve came down. Actually, I was reading a stat the other day. Something in in a very short amount of time, cost of wind farm and electricity generation reduced by like two thirds in remark. So yeah, the the first ones who connect onto the network will need a bit more support than the mm-hmm. 10th, 12th, as, partly as we expect the cost to come down and partly as we expect carbon value to go up, um, partly through the emissions trading scheme, which again is a whole separate podcast. And so I think and, and so investors are pretty familiar with that uh, and society is pretty familiar with that. And then the third uh, component, well, actually there's two, another one, a, th- a third component is then the transport story. So where's this carbon going to go? Uh, it needs to be captured um, to start with, put into pipelines, but in future might be ship, might be rail, might be road, uh, before then being stored permanently and safely under the sea in a store. And that will be a regulated asset-backed model. And again, both the public sector and the private sector are very well equipped with that. The, the electricity network that we operate, the the gas, the, the natural gas, which you know, heats our homes and uh, and everything else you know, is, is very much in that structure. And so we'll need the legal foundation and the regulatory foundation. So again, get that Goldilocks point between protecting the consumers and the payers, mm-hmm. which will be those power companies, those industrial companies will pay a service to the transport storage company. So to protect them from not paying too much, uh, there'll be a regulated environment whilst allowing the investors of the transport storage company you know, a fair a fair return for their risk and their capital and, and everything else. So again, you know, there, there's a business model that uh, people understand. And then the, the future business models uh, to be created is, is hydrogen. You know, how, how will that work? The whole hydrogen economy is, is perhaps less developed. You know, hydrogen is in the economy already, as we know, but the carbon capture has been you know, technically operating since the early 1970s. So there's, there's probably a lot more experience in it so the hydrogen business model needs to be developed and then we talked about negative emissions you know that one is one that should we decide to go down that route we'll need developing as well but you know they're, they're still in the draft mode is it a kind of should we decide to go down this route 
thing or, or, or is it more is it further down the line than that I just there's something quite mental about the thought of storing carbon sort of indefinitely under the sea you, like like there's nothing that I can imagine storing for that long and I know that there's sort of all sorts of infrastructure components to consider there as well which obviously have been thought about but I just I work for a business that is very circular economy focused and for me it seems kind of obvious to do what we can even if it is shorter term sort of hundreds of years rather than tens of thousands of years to 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 pump it back into industry I don't know yeah, I think it's no, absolutely. We we absolutely need to drive forward the usage and get as much of that as possible. And you know, if we if we could get you know, billions of tons, even only temporarily stored for two hundred years in paperback book rather than digital books, you know, that would be fantastic because the you know the tree absorbs the carbon, it grows, and then it's it's stuck away and stored in a paper, and then you grow a new tree which stores more, and you put it into paper. So you know, ironically, this move to digital. Is, is removing one of the uses for trees and therefore uses for, for carbon reduction. So, yeah, buy more books. <laughs> Actually, I, although my, my, my brain's not big enough to work out whether the, the, the zero-sum game of that <laughs> is actually carbon negative or not. But my view is the speed that we need to operate. So the great thing about the pandemic, in my view, and you know, if there is a great thing, you know, the silver line, um, is we've started listening to science. And the science says, get this done by 2050 or you're in that irreversible point. And the scientists also say, get the bulk of it done by 2030. So when I look at the balance of probabilities of, you know, will there be enough innovation on the usage cases to not need storage by 2030? I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm personally willing to pay more tax to hedge my bet and have a store. And if a great technology comes out that means we don't need them, wonderful. I can't see that happening. But yeah, we we will need to give the investors in those stores enough confidence of the duration. And and from my view, the science seems to be saying, yeah, we we need it and we need it to be stored permanently. And let's not forget that's where the carbon came from. We're putting it back where it came from. Mm. And again, the, the science shows that it is safe to store permanently. Okay. Okay. And in a kind of in indefinite quantities as well, because I what I also get concerned about is this kind of behavioural complacency that is sort of offered up by saying, oh, you can kind of do what you want because we'll capture all the carbon that you use. And I know that's a very simplistic, exaggerated way of saying it, but I just, there is this kind of, oh, okay, well, I can, you know, I'll fly to Bristol because <laughs> it's quick and it's easy and I'm going to capture the carbon to do it. So... Yeah, this, this again, I think, I think is a valid principle view of the opponents of it is does it give us enough of an incentive? But again, it's, you know, it's what do we want to hedge our bets on? Do we, do we want to put it all into plan A, that people change their lifestyle? History shows that people don't, in my view. Personally, I'm not willing to take that gap. And so, uh, no, there's, there is a finite amount of storage. And so, you know, the, the idea is, you know, look, we can, and there's someone's done a, a study to be verified, but you know, sort of 200 years worth of UK emissions can be stored. And, and my view is that you know, 200 years, you can change a lot. Human behaviour can change a lot. Consumption can change a lot, such that by that time, we're not adding to in our day-to-day. You know, the incremental is not there. So if we can buy 200 years of technological transition such that when we drive, move, make, 
things, we're not adding to the carbon. And I, I think 200 years we can do it. 10 years, I don't think we can. Uh, so that, that, that's kind of my personal personal view. And so we, we need it. And, you know, again, I'll be flipping, but if the, the space billionaires manage to get Mars as a, as a giant carbon storage location, and if we can use hydrogen jet fuel, which is net zero, to get the carbon up there and people can continue to do it, then then why not? If it's truly net zero, then why not give people the life-enhancing quality of mobility? I, you know, I think it brings cultures together, it lifts lives, it gives employment. Uh, mobility is incredibly rewarding. You know, the 600 million people in Africa alone who are off the grid deserve mobility, just just like we do. And if we can give it to them in a in a net zero way, wonderful. So Alex, you've talked about a lot of the pieces of the jigsaw to pull together the the, the business model, and it, it it's it sounds like it's really taking shape. How easy do you think it will be to? sell the new asset class to sort of long-term investors because it's, it seems to fit that that model very well uh, for institutional investors but it I, I would imagine there's a huge process of education to talk about the at a granular level the the mechanics of the business model and make it attractive uh, to, to to those investors. So I think the yeah we're, we're at the high level design. The principle is there. Investors are ready. So it, it all comes down to two things. Yeah, you know, one is what's the several things. Yeah, you know, what's the longevity of support and confidence that, that's going to be there? What's the degree of the support that's going to be there in the interim period until society values carbon higher? So who's going to make up the difference? And, and how much that is, how much is that making up the difference? And then lastly, as ever with any investor, but you know, the, the government is looking at the risks and the investors are looking at the risks. So who bears what risk under what set of circumstances? So there's, there's only three things that need to get solved. Those are three huge things that, that will take a lot of really smart people from all sides you know, coming to an agreement. But you know, I, I'm really confident that it's solvable. You know, the, the question is how fast, how much it gets done. Well, I, th- I think on, on that note, Alex, we've covered a lot of ground today and, and I think you've articulated really well the case for carbon capture and, and thank you for sharing your insights and observations and and just articulating for us the the evolving business model i want to thank you for all that you're doing in role i think it's great that you are in role bears are very lucky to have you and i'm very glad that you're you're doing what you're doing thank you for your your time today Uh, and you know i hope we can move forward at pace and speed (laughs) to get this over the line no me too and you know thank you for having me and thanks for all you're doing with this you know, series of podcasts and stimulating the debate and, and getting us to think through what are the complex set of choices you know these aren't sort of individual granular things and i'm also conscious i go such a long list of long-winded answers that we didn't get onto innovation onto skills onto diversity onto uh, a whole host of other things which would have been fantastic to do so happy to come back if you haven't yeah well let's let, let's get that in the diary tilly you heard yeah. Alex, podcast number two. Pin him down. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for your Thank time. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for everything Alex. you're doing.